This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Fifteen years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not a hundred percent, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hey, murder fam, and welcome back to Serial Killing, a podcast. My name is Alyssa Carroll, and this is Serial Saturday, where every Saturday we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on Joseph Duncan III. This one, of course, comes with a huge disclaimer, disclaimer, because this involves children and horrible things that happen to children. So if you're sensitive to that, I am a little, it's okay if you don't want to listen. We'll still be friends. Joseph Edward Duncan III was born on February 25th, 1963 in Tacoma, Washington. So let's get into some history for that time. This year, U.S. President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in his car in front of his wife while being driven through Dallas, Texas. Lee Harvey Oswald was pointed to as the, quote, lone gunman, which most people now do not agree with. Lyndon Johnson took over the presidency. Hurricane Flora devastated the Caribbean, hitting Trinidad, Tobago, and Grenada. For a time, it had winds in excess of 170 miles per hour. The first woman in space, Soviet Union's Valentina Tereshkova, was launched in the Vostok 6 spacecraft. She was in space for three days. She then landed safely back on Earth. Yugoslavia became the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia and its leader, Josip Broz Tito, was named, quote, President for Life. In Libya, an earthquake destroyed the village of Bars, killing around 500 people. So, this was the atmosphere that Joseph was born into. Joseph was the second youngest out of five children to Joseph E. Duncan Jr. and Lillian, but I couldn't find her maiden name. Joseph's father was career military and was often deployed, leaving Lillian alone with five children. The family also moved every year or two, according to Joseph's brother, Bruce. He stated the children went to school, they went to church, and they were members of the Boy Scouts, all very normal. 
Now, Bruce also says that there was no abuse during their childhood. Their sister, Sherry, says otherwise. She later told the judge during Joseph's trial that all of the children were frequently beaten by Lillian and that Lillian often complained about men being worthless, quote unquote. She says their mother attended church obsessively. She said that if any of the children cried out or fought back during the beatings, well, the beatings intensified. Joseph, she says, would sort of take the beatings and then go to his room to be with himself and cry. So as far as information about his earlier childhood, that's all I could find, which is surprising considering his crimes. Nonetheless, Joseph's parents divorced when he was 15 years old and he, soon after, would be in trouble with the law. He took a gun, he pointed it at a nine-year-old little boy and raped him. Some sources say he was arrested, but then released. I can't confirm that with any degree of confidence, but the next year he was arrested for driving a stolen vehicle. He rants in a blog of sorts that he couldn't understand why he was charged with also a deadly weapon because the cop was in his way when he was speeding down the road. From that offense, he was sent to Dislin's Boys Ranch in Tacoma. Now, there's a place with some history. This Boys Ranch was a state-run home for boys. It is reported that during the 80s and 90s, boys were being sexually abused. Dozens of men who were sent there in their youth now say that they were sexually abused beaten with socks that had batteries in them, and the ranch staff was well aware of what was going on. In fact, supposedly they were told that they were just going to have to take care of themselves, that, quote, this is the law of the jungle at the boys ranch, unquote. Joseph was sent there in 1980. Now I mentioned the blog before, Joseph later wrote a blog about his experience there. So here's a direct quote, it's kind of a long one. Quote, it seemed the boy in the cell next door was jumping up and down on his bunk, which was bolted to my bunk through the wall. So I stood on my bunk and looked through a crack between the cells where the wall met the windows and I could see him bouncing in the window. I asked him what he was doing and he told me he was putting on a show for the girls in the dorm across the courtyard out the window. When I looked, I saw several girls crowded in one of the large dorm room windows in the wing across the way. They were taking turns lifting their shirts and exposing their breasts. The boy next to me was exposing an erection in return. I don't remember if I exposed myself as well, but I probably did. It would have been a natural thing to do. So I don't recall if I could actually see the boy next to me through the crack exposing himself to the girls. The whole experience was brand new for me and strangely liberating. I did not know such behavior could be accepted among kids and of course it thrilled me. I do remember clearly that even though I was in very intimate proximity for extended periods with a lot of younger boys, I had no sexual desires or interests in them. This is significant because 
Less than a year later, I raped a boy two years younger than me, and in treatment for that rape, I was convicted, brainwashed, literally, into believing that my sexual deviancy was long-lived. The treatment program ignored the significance of my non-sexual proclivities while I was at the boys' ranch and instead focused on the much earlier incidents of childhood sexual curiosity as evidence of my prolonged deviance. There was one incident that occurred while I was at Dislands that had a major impact on my sexual behavior after I went back home to live with my mother. The mitigation investigators uncovered numerous criminal and civil laws against such ranch staff for abuses that occurred there for many years, around the time I was there. My lawyers tried to get me to admit to any abuse I suffered while I was there, but I honestly never witnessed or even suspected such abuse. But then, I was still very naive back then, so I would have had no reason to suspect anything, even if I did see something suspicious. This became a kind of touchstone memory for me that helped me to come to understand many years later how the system brainwashed me into believing I was sick, dangerous, and deviant, when the truth was I was only confused by the many mixed signals I got from our very confused social system and culture, which I have since come to refer to as the insanity that infected me. So, later Joseph did speak about a man who sexually abused him during that time, though he insists that he didn't feel abused, but rather enjoyed it. So, he was released after a summer at the boys' ranch back into the custody of his mother. He states in the blog that the rest of his siblings were either grown and gone or had left to go live with their father, which left him alone with his mother. He went back to high school, but he had to start his sophomore year all over again. He spoke about how he had a newly learned immunity from consequence, quote unquote. Wrap your mind around that, a newly learned immunity from consequence. He then bragged about sexually abusing several young boys out in the woods after threatening them with an axe and molesting children that he was left with to babysit, including one that was still in diapers. He described these actions like this, quote, I only thought things like, what can I do next, or that wasn't any fun. As for feelings, I wasn't scared or nervous nor was I very excited or anxious. I just felt normal, like this was all just an encounter with a new friend or something. I had no concern at all for any consequences other than the embarrassment I might feel if I got found out. In my mind at that time, stealing cars and running from the police was far worse than what I was doing to that 14-year-old boy. As an adult, some 30 years later, this boy testified at my sentencing trial that this was by far the most painful and terrifying experience of his life. At the time, I thought I was being nice to him and maybe even teaching him fun things. Even now, I can't help but wonder what sort of sheltered life he must have had if this was the worst thing that ever happened to him." Unquote. 
So guys, I don't really have much stomach for describing exactly in detail what he did to this little boy, but he was promptly arrested. Joseph told a therapist that he figured he had raped around 13 younger boys at this point. He was 17 years old. He was sentenced to 20 years in prison. So, that was Joseph's childhood. Again, we don't have much about his early childhood. We also have conflicting stories between his interviewed brother and sister. His brother states that they had a fairly typical upbringing, while his sister says that they suffered abuse from an overly religious mother who spoke poorly about men. So which was it? Joseph himself says he suffered horrible abuse as a child, but there just isn't enough information that I could find at least to give me enough background to really say this or that was a catalyst or the spark, if you will. What we do know is that, from a fairly early age, he was a sexual predator. Now, juveniles account for about 36% of the population that commit sex offenses against minors. Those that do commit these crimes against other children are more likely than adult sex offenders to offend in groups and at schools and to have more male victims and younger victims. Also, the number of youth coming to the attention of the police for sex offenses increases sharply at age 12, according to the U.S. Department of Justice, and then plateaus at the age of 14. Early adolescence is the peak age for offenses against younger children. Offenses against teenagers surge during the mid to late adolescence, while offenses against victims under 12 decline. Juvenile sex offender treatment programs saw a 40-fold increase between 1982 and 1992. Teenage sex offenders are predominantly male, more than 90%. Most offenses described in the clinical literature involve teenage offenders acting alone with young children as victims. We definitely see that with Joseph. Now, not all juvenile sex offenders grow up to be adult sex offenders. Current studies emphasize the diversity of juvenile sex offenders, their favorable prognosis suggested by low reoffending rates, and the commonalities between juvenile sex offending and other juvenile delinquency. And that's the part to pay attention to, guys. The commonalities between juvenile sex offending and other juvenile delinquency. So there was this study out of Florida State University titled, quote, Differentiating Two Types of Juvenile Sex Offenders, Generalists versus Specialists. The purpose of the study was to look at behaviors or factors that could be used to possibly predict and separate two types of juvenile sexual offenders. One is juvenile sex offenders with a history of antisocial behavior, which they called generalists, and the other was juvenile sex offenders without that history, which they called specialists. They also factor in other contributing things, such as, you know, parental abuse, household income, single parents, children of divorce, male versus female victim, uh, victimization history, lack of empathy, lack of remorse, and then, of course, controlling for things like a history of ADHD, which is a whole other thing that we, we can get into some other time. 
So to summarize an over 100-page report, it showed that the children who committed sex offenses against other children showed an increased history of juvenile delinquency, but really that's to be expected. And while youths who commit sex offenses are highly unlikely to commit another sexual offense after the age of 14, those who show delinquent behavior on top of committing sexual offenses are more likely to reoffend later. And again, this really isn't surprising. So in Joseph's blog posts, he seemed legitimately surprised at the negative reactions his victim had regarding his behavior. While he believed his behavior should have been dismissed as nearly normal, it would have been quite dangerous to ignore his aggressive sexual behavior. After his arrest and sentencing to 20 years, he was diagnosed as having antisocial personality disorder and a sexual psychopath. So what does that look like? We know with a psychopath there is the absence of emotional connection and true empathetic feeling. They just aren't capable of trusting and depending on other individuals. Their experience with sex is vastly different from their non-psychopathic peers according to Psychology Today. The antisocial aspect is characterized by hostility, extroversion, self-confidence, impulsivity, aggression, and mild to moderate anxiety. And sex is never a mutually emotional experience with a psychopath. I mean, we all know this. They are singularly focused on getting the most important part out of it, which is their immediate needs, regardless of the expense of others. They are sexually motivated by power, which is exactly how Joseph described his juvenile offenses. So let's get back into his story. Out of the 20-year sentence, he only served 14 of those years. He said those years were filled with extreme violence, perversion, isolation, stress, and rape, and so on. But he said he was thankful for it. In 1994, once he was released, it was reported that he lived in several different areas around Seattle, Washington. He was arrested two years later for possession of marijuana. He was released on parole a few weeks later with new, quote, new restrictions. Now, there were three murders that occurred while he was on parole. The first was 11-year-old Sammy Jo White and her 9-year-old sister Carmen Cubius, I hope I pronounced that correctly, who disappeared after leaving a motel in Seattle just before 11 p.m. They were leaving to go pick up some cigarettes from a restaurant that had one of those kind of old cigarette machines for their older brother. At that time, Joseph was living in another motel only three blocks away. Although the details of the murders are sparse, it is known that they died violently. Both of their skulls had been crushed. Their remains were not found until two years later in an abandoned barn, and it was determined that the girls were most likely killed as soon as they disappeared. Joseph confessed to murdering the girls and provided information that only the murderer would have known, but he confessed to this later. We'll get to it. Then in 1997, it is believed that he kidnapped, at knife point, 
10-year-old Anthony Martinez while he was playing outside of his Beaumont, California home. Two weeks later, his very badly sun-cooked, decomposed, naked body was found in a desert ravine. He had been bound around his wrists and ankles with duct tape, and he had been half-covered in rocks. Unfortunately, or fortunately, it was the circling vultures that caught the attention of a ranger near the spot. A news article about the horrific find stated that the authorities believed the crime was the work of a practiced, quote, practiced sexual predator, unquote. The description from young witnesses who had also been out playing described Joseph completely. He later confessed to killing a young boy in the same fashion from that area later, but all three of the murders did go cold for a while. After this, Joseph traveled to Kansas, where he was arrested there for violating the terms of his probation and was not released again until July 2000, three years later. Joseph then decided to move to North Dakota. After that, he moved to Minnesota, where in 2004, he, quote, groped the genitals of a six-year-old and a seven-year-old boy, unquote. He was arrested in March 2005, and in April, his bail was set at $15,000. Now, a Fargo businessman that Joseph had befriended posted his bail. Joseph said thanks by skipping bail and disappearing. So a federal warrant was issued for his arrest. It was at this point that he made his way to Idaho in a stolen red Jeep Cherokee that he had picked up in Missouri and ended up in Coeur d'Alene. Now Coeur d'Alene is in Idaho. Most of the story about what happened is from the testimony of an eight-year-old girl named Shasta. So here's what she said. Shasta said that her mother called her to come into the living room as the girl had been in her room sleeping. There she saw Joseph wearing black gloves and pointing a gun at her mother, 40-year-old Brenda. Joseph then tied Brenda's hands together with zip ties. Young Shasta said she then watched as Joseph did the same to her stepfather, 37-year-old Mark, and her 13-year-old brother, Slade. He then took her and her next older brother, 9-year-old Dylan, outside to the stolen Jeep, and they were told to wait. Joseph then went back into the house, and Shasta heard her stepfather scream and watched as her gravely injured brother stumbled out of the house. Joseph ultimately bludgeoned the parents and the older brother to death. Shasta said that she and Dylan didn't actually see Joseph murder their family. Then she said Joseph got into the vehicle and began driving a very long way, at least from her perspective. I don't know how long it took for the family to be discovered murdered and the youngest two missing, but on May 16, 2005, police found the family's bodies in their home. An Amber Alert was issued for Shasta and Dylan and the search for the children began. The autopsies on the three bodies determined the cause of death to be blunt force trauma to the head. So Joseph drove to a remote area of Montana and put together a couple of different campsites. 
He then bragged to the children that he had killed their family with a claw hammer and he would use that very weapon to kill them. Then he would completely switch and be kind to the children. He would horrifically and frequently molest the children and he did so for six weeks. Then, for some reason, Joseph decided Dylan had to die. Shasta stated she was on the other side of the Jeep when she heard a loud explosion sound and she ran around the Jeep to see what it was. There she saw Dylan on the ground, screaming in agony. She watched as Joseph put the gun to the back of the boy's head and shot him, killing him instantly. She said that Joseph began crying, telling her that he had accidentally killed her brother, that he hadn't meant to, and that the second shot was to put him out of his misery. He then wrapped the body and burned it in a fire, and once there was nothing but ash, he made Shasta help him gather the ashes into bags and discard them. Then days later, Joseph said it was time for her to die, and she had a choice to be strangled or to be shot. She chose strangulation. He then put a rope around her little neck and began to squeeze, but Shasta begged him to stop, and thankfully he did. He randomly asked her if she would like to meet his mom, and of course she said yes. They got into the Jeep and started driving back toward Coeur d'Alene and stopped to get something to eat at a Denny's. Thankfully, the staff at Denny's recognized Shasta. They called the police and positioned themselves to ensure Joseph would not be able to escape. But according to Joseph, he was merely returning the girl home. He was thankfully arrested, and that's when Shasta told them what had happened to her family, as well as what had happened to little Dylan. When they found the campsite, they were able to find what was left of his remains. And then she was handed over to her biological father. After Joseph's arrest, the FBI launched a nationwide look at unsolved, missing, or murdered children to see if Joseph might have been the perpetrator. And that's when they matched him to the two girls and the boy from the cold cases. Ultimately, Joseph was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole, then later was given the death penalty. The jurors who decided on the death penalty were then offered counseling in order to help them cope with the horrific evidence that they were forced to look at during the trial. This evidence included human remains, a wire noose, as well as videos of Joseph torturing nine-year-old Dylan. During one of the videos, disclaimer, disclaimer, a child could be heard screaming in pain while a naked Joseph can be heard shouting, quote, the devil is here, boy, the devil himself. The devil likes to watch children suffer and cry, unquote. Now, he has a website he named, quote, the fifth nail and fifth nail revelations. The fifth nail is referring to how the people that crucified Jesus had a fifth nail that was supposed to go into his heart. I'll put some of the links down in the description as well as in the podcast notes if you want to read his ramblings. But if you do, do so with caution. And as you read, it will be glaringly obvious that he is a very, very sick man. But his philosophies are worth a read. 
And whatever became of Shasta, she was eight years old when he took her. So in 2014, 17-year-old Shasta was arrested and sent to a juvenile detention center for a year for having methamphetamine within a young child's reach. She assured everyone this had changed her and that she would do better. Then three years later, she was arrested again on two misdemeanor charges related to drugs, again. She was released again and then violated the conditions of her parole and was sentenced to 18 months. She was able to plead it down to 18 months of supervised probation. It is said that she lives in Nampa near Boise, Idaho, and it's no wonder she has troubles considering what she endured. So this man is clearly a very dangerous sexual predator with antisocial personality disorder who cannot comprehend that what he has done to so many people is horrific and scarring. I feel that more could have been done to keep his victim safe by keeping him away from the general public, but I also understand that there are laws in place and that those laws have restrictions and time limits. So was it nature? Was it nurture? Perhaps a bit of both? I think a bit of both. What do you think? Leave me a message on Instagram at serial underscore killing or a comment on the YouTube channel. Um, Consider becoming a sponsor. I'm officially saving up for better camera gear and better lighting. And um, again, thank you so, so much for listening. I appreciate every single one of you guys so much. You have no idea because I know you could have been listening to anyone else, but you chose me. I find that fascinating. Thank you and have a great day.